Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996. You can read all of my work at my website, Quipster.net. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast that covers more recent movies. It is called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. You can find the link at that website, Quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the third part of a three-part series looking at benevolent aliens that have visited Earth. Close Encounters of the Third Kind and E.T. were the first two movies in this mini-series. Today I'm going to be getting into a film that pretty much came about or was heavily influenced by those two movies. It's from 1984 and it is called Starman. Starman is a PG-rated film. It definitely would be PG-13, at least today. It does have violence, brief nudity, and language. The runtime is an hour and 55 minutes. Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen are the main stars. Charles Martin Smith has a sizable supporting role. Richard Jekyll, Robert Phelan, MC Ganey are also in the film. John Carpenter is the director. The screenplay credited to Bruce A. Evans and Reynold Gideon. Now, in the late 70s, Columbia Pictures, they had a multi-picture development deal with actor and producer Michael Douglas. In 1980, Douglas bought this script to this sci-fi concept called Starman. It came from Bruce A. Evans and Raynal Gideon, and he urged Columbia to take it up as his next project. Now, Douglas loved the humor and the pathos within the script. This alien race has been studying Earth. They've pretty much figured out everything about Earth except for humans and human behavior. Columbia had just scored a big hit with Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In fact, it was the film that saved the studio from certain bankruptcy. So this seemed a sensible investment to keep going with a similar film. They also wanted to keep Douglas on board with their studio. So Columbia accepted and Douglas took on an executive producer's role. Now, in addition to Starman, Columbia wanted a follow-up to Close Encounters itself. And Steven Spielberg, he wasn't really interested in doing another Close Encounters film, but he also didn't want to see another franchise that he kicked off tarnished like Jaws was. So he would produce the next film. The project that he came up with was called Night Skies, initially a farm under siege by aliens science fiction horror concept, very much at odds with the tone of the first Close Encounters. So at odds that Spielberg had a change of heart and decided to repackage Night Skies by developing a subplot within that film, one where a kindly alien and an autistic boy form a friendship. And this new direction blossomed into what would become E.T. the Extraterrestrial. After conducting market research, Columbia told Spielberg that his E.T. concept was limited in appeal only to kids and the story veered too close to Starman. So they had to make a choice and they decided to ride Starman because they felt that that had, in addition to appealing to the younger set, it had appeal to adults and women because of its romantic subtext. So they put E.T. into turnaround and they asked for a proper sequel to Close Encounters again. And by this point, E.T. became a passion project for Spielberg. He asked Universal Pictures to buy it out from Columbia and he would direct it. Universal gave Columbia a million dollars for their turnaround fees and 5% of their profits if they postponed Starman until at least six months after E.T.'s release. And feeling that E.T. would be no more popular than a typical live-action Disney release, which wasn't a very popular brand in the early 1980s, they accepted. However, creative differences in E.T.'s monumental success, it sent a wave of panic among the brass at Columbia Pictures. They demanded that Starman be reworked completely, so they churned through what would end up being six directors, 
Those directors included Mark Rydell, who left after the first day. He had artistic disagreements with Michael Douglas that could not be resolved, so he was out of there very quickly. Almost just as quickly was John Badham. He left for war games. He had viewed E.T. in the theater, and he did not want unflattering comparisons to Spielberg in that film, so he left. Adrian Lin, he came in, but he lasted a lot longer. He lasted about six months. But he would leave to do Flashdance when the studio decided that they were going to turn Starman into a much more comedic concept. Tony Scott then came in. He wanted Broadway star Philip Anglum to play Starman. And, and he was eventually evicted from the job when he had a bad commercial and critical drubbing for his style over story type of filmmaking exemplified by his 1983 film called The Hunger. Peter Hyams took over for Scott, but he was taking the opposite end. He was doing too mundane approach, too literal an approach. And so he was out and he decided to go make 2010, The Year We Make Contact, which was actually released the same day as Starman, it turns out, and did actually better. But finally, John Carpenter was the one to take the role and he stuck. So we have John Carpenter's Starman. Now, Carpenter was putting the finishing touches on Christine when he was hired, and Columbia had admired his reputation for delivering quality films on time and within budget. He said he wanted to do Starman as a little bit more fairy tale in its concept, instead of just a straight science fiction film. He wanted a little bit more The Wizard of Oz, maybe a little less fantasy than that, but he wanted it more like that than it would be Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But he wanted it also grounded into this road trip type movie. It would have romance, it would have comedy, a little bit like Frank Capra's It Happened One Night or maybe Hitchcock's The 39 Steps where you see a man and a woman get to know each other romantically through their dire circumstances if it had more of a science fiction premise, of course. And Columbia approved this approach because it was a less expensive approach than doing an all-out effects extravaganza. Carpenter had just suffered a box office disappointment of his own. He had done The Thing. Christine would turn out to be a modestly successful performer, but not necessarily very popular. And Carpenter wanted here a change of pace from the darkness of some of his films. He was looking for something beyond his comfort zone that would allow him to grow as a director, as an artist. And here was a chance to show that he could make a successful romance or comedy or an adventure and a road movie all in one. And he wanted to prove that he was a good and versatile director. He was not just somebody that was interested in horror-based themes. In addition to the six directors, there were also five writers that were attached at one time or another. The original script and first revision were by Evans and Gideon, and Edward Zwick came in to do a polish. Zwick was a writer that uh, Michael Douglas respected, and he became a future acclaimed director of his own. Diane Thomas came in. She also scripted Romancing the Stone for Douglas to do some work with the dialogue there. Columbia's resident script doctor came in to do the final revisions, many of them actually, Dean Reisner. Now many of the snags between all of these writers had to do with getting bogged down with a lot of the details as to the extraterrestrial's appearance and what his ship would look like and what kind of superpowers he would have and it just took up a lot of the time. So Reisner, when he was brought in, it was specifically to differentiate Starman from E.T., at least initially, because the public was going to see Starman is nothing more than a ripoff of E.T., especially if it was in its current state. But he was also told, don't deviate too much from E.T., because they also wanted to tap into the same market, the same crowd that was out there that made that such a phenomenal success. Now, during the revisions, John Carpenter also caught wind of this other similar project that came out in 1984. It was called The Brother from Another Planet, and it came from John Sayles, 
Sales happened to have written the script for the project that would eventually turn into E.T., that was Night Skies. After attending a screening, Carpenter told Reisner he should redraft a new script. He should concentrate Starman more as a love story. That would be the angle that would make it unique. Maybe make it a road trip comedy in the vein of Frank Capra's It Happened One Night. Carpenter wanted the tone to stay very upbeat and amusing, and having Reisner remove some of these heavy-handed political elements and scenes that went through a lot of the revisions, like Starman blowing up the government bad guys at the end with a laser blast, he thought that was just too much. He wanted it to stay a much more positive and optimistic experience for the viewers. Carpenter decided that they would not show the alien as anything but this energy orb before it would transform into what would become a physical embodiment. He would become a human being, at least in appearance. An early version of Reisner's script, the alien was going to be transparent. You would see its innards. And Carpenter told Reisner, let's not make him anything other than a complete human because having alien physical traits may dampen their attempt to capitalize on the romance if this character was too much of an other, and it would distract from the adventure aspects that he felt that audiences would be much more interested in following as part of its entertainment. So the final plot that made it into the film, an alien race intercepts Voyager 2, which was a space probe that was sent out in the late 1970s, in real life actually was sent out. It was, it was something that contained elements that described Earth, effectively inviting aliens to visit or at least saying hello. Some aliens did encounter Voyager 2 and they took up Earth on the offer to pay a visit. They sent a scout pod to see what we were up to. American fighter jets greet this pod, and the alien scout crash lands in the American backwoods in Wisconsin. Using DNA found in some clipped hair follicles within a photo album held in the home of a recent widow named Jenny Hayden, the alien transforms itself into the likeness of Jenny's dead husband, this house painter named Scott Hayden. Jeff Bridges plays Scott Hayden there. Now, the not Scott must get to a rendezvous point at Meteor Crater, Arizona, to get back into the mothership before he dies. But SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, as well as the FBI, want to find him. SETI wants to get to know him. FBI wants to experiment on him. But the alien has no choice. He has to kidnap Jenny to assist him to get to his rendezvous point. A little bit more to the story than that, but I don't want to go into any kind of major spoilers here for those people who haven't seen it. The Screenwriters Guild had to have arbitration to give credit to the original screenwriters Bruce A. Evans and Raynald Gideon. Carpenter was angry about that choice because he felt that Dean Reisner, who came into the project in late 1981, he ended up writing seven drafts over the next two years to the point where he felt that the story was just as much Reisner's as it was Evans and Gideon. So he did not get any credit for his script revisions despite two Writers Guild arbitrations. So Carpenter dedicated the film at the end to Dean Reisner and that caused some controversy with the Writers Guild. They felt that that credit was usually something that was reserved for deceased collaborators or sources of inspiration, not necessarily to give a tack-on credit for one of the writers. Alan Dean Foster though, the novelization that he did included Dean Reisner's name as one of the sources. Now although he came in late, Columbia called it John Carpenter's Starman in its advertisements on its movie posters. Market research found that putting John Carpenter's name above the title did increase audience interest and that his name did not necessarily denote a horror film to those people that would be interested. They saw him as just a good director, not necessarily as somebody who just made horror films. 
Michael Douglas at one point considered making himself the star of the film, but because he became too involved with starring in and making Romancing the Stone, he couldn't take the role. And by this point, his star power was rising as a box office performer. He had all but given up as a producer trying to get Starman made, so Columbia at that point was calling many of the shots without him anyway. Other than making a few suggestions on some casting changes and some notes on an early cut, Douglas's involvement in the production of Starman was minimal after hiring Carpenter. Now, for the cast, the studio initially wanted to go very young. They wanted some 20-something stars to put in the film. One star that they wanted really badly was Tom Cruise, just coming off of Risky Business. He was going to play Starman. Mariel Hemingway or Diane Lane were suggestions for playing Jenny. Carpenter met with all of these actors, including the 22-year-old Cruise. He would have had no problem making the film with Cruise, but he was still very young, very fresh-faced to play a long-term soulmate for somebody. So in December of 1983, they decided to go with 26-year-old Kevin Bacon. He was slated to star... But then Carpenter started auditioning for the role of Jenny, and he changed his mind as to Kevin Bacon's involvement when he auditioned 33-year-old Karen Allen. Allen clicked instantly as Jenny. She was tough, yet vulnerable in a very convincing way. He felt that this was the Jenny that he had to go with. But because she was older than Kevin Bacon by a few years... He felt that they should go for a male lead that would be much more her age and her equal. So Jeff Bridges was sought, not just because of his box office appeal, but he also has this boyish and manly quality to him, that, which worked very well for that kind of role. Carpenter had been wanting to work with Bridges for other films he had made in the past, Escape from New York and The Thing, obviously those starred Kurt Russell, but he really wanted to get Jeff Bridges on board for those, but it wasn't going to work out timing-wise. So he moved on to Kurt Russell, and Kurt Russell became kind of an action star through those movies as well. Now, when Bridges came in, he started doing a lot of rehearsing as to what Starman's physical movements would be. He worked with a friend of his, a dancer named Russell Clark. If you've seen Xanadu or Fright Night Part 2, Russell Clark is kind of a, he's a very captivating dancer. He's not necessarily hugely significant to those movies, but you definitely remember his appearance in it if you've seen those movies recently. Bridges also thought of Russell Clark as somebody who was very otherworldly in his demeanor. So this was kind of the perfect person to give him choreography to make him seem like an alien. Bridges also observed how his young daughters, who were three years old and about a year and a half old at the time, they were just learning to walk or talk or observe how the world works. So he was going to incorporate a lot of their mannerisms and movements and curiosity into Starman's performance. For his head movements, it was suggested by Clark he look at ornithology, base his head movements on birds. So Bridges kept a picture of a bird on his script to give himself a cue each time to make sure that he moved his head back and forth just like a bird might. Dean Reisner claimed at this point he had written the film as a women's picture. It was really going to be carried by Jenny Hayden, but Bridges managed to steal with his performance all of the scenes he was in. He put so much effort into his performance that he really became the one to watch. Now, Karen Allen, she had butted heads repeatedly with Steven Spielberg on Raiders of the Lost Ark for not valuing input from his actors. She says that Starman was one of the most pleasurable experiences of her screen acting career. She found John Carpenter a refreshing change of pace. He worked with his actors on their motivation, and he valued their opinion on shaping how they might behave in certain situations, even if it was not specifically in the script or in his storyboards. For instance... 
The script depicts Jenny in complete fear of the alien, assuming her husband's body, but Alan felt she'd be a little bit more conflicted about seeing this. She would be repulsed for sure, but she was still intrigued enough because she was seeing her dead husband here to want to explore this possibility that he is somehow in there to find his presence comforting much more quickly. So Alan saw the role as a challenge in achieving and maintaining an emotional state of mind throughout, especially since this was something that she would never experience in real life. She had to create all of these emotions that nobody had ever experienced because nobody has ever gone through what she's going through in this film. Charles Martin Smith, he was cast. He didn't even have to audition. He received a phone call from Carpenter. He had never worked with Carpenter before, but Carpenter was a big fan of Smith's work due to his inherent likability instantly on the screen. He had tried a couple of times to work with him before, but he was always busy, so he got him on board for Starman. Despite minimal effect sequences, they did hire some of the best technical crews in Hollywood. Joe Alves came in. He was somebody who worked on Close Encounters as well as Jaws. He scouted locations. He performed second unit directorial duties. Makeup effects brought in some pretty big heavy hitters here. Three major talents, Dick Smith, Rick Baker, and Stan Winston. They shared duties, for instance, in the scene where the alien uses Scott's DNA to go from an embryo to a full-grown man. All three of them performed something within that scene. Rick Baker made the infant, Stan Winston created this effect of the infant turning into a boy, and then Dick Smith handled the boy turning into a man. All of these creators, though, did complain about being asked to do effects work with a film with such a severely limited budget because they thought audiences were going to expect, by having their names attached, really eye-popping visuals that aren't really there for most of the runtime. Now, for the visual effects themselves, they brought in the biggest name in the business, Industrial Light and Magic, to enhance the arrival and departure sequences at the beginning and the end of the film. Now, some did badmouth some of the effects work done here, feeling it like it doesn't really flow with the rest of the movie. Joe Alves, in particular, said that Industrial Light and Magic delivered effects here that were not what he asked for. He said that the title of Starman maybe should be changed so that audiences would not anticipate this effects-dominated film. And some science fiction buffs do complain that the Mothership ending does plagiarize this 1982 film from New World Pictures that starred Robert Carradine called Wavelength. It's an ending that has a similarly shiny orb-like spacecraft that reflects its surroundings. It was coming out on video, so people were making instant comparisons between Wavelength and what they were seeing in Starman. Alves, though, does state that he had no knowledge of Wavelength and similarities are pure coincidence. So he had conceived of this Saturn-like ship before he'd ever heard of this other film and its chrome-like similarities. Now, although the premise does strain believability at times, there are many contrivances to get the film to work. It does remain entertaining, and it does pack an emotional punch. Jeff Bridges here, he's endearing this Oscar and Golden Globe-nominated performance as the fish-out-of-water alien having to adjust to a world he's never known. That Oscar nomination, by the way, would be the only one earned by a film that was directed by John Carpenter. Now, it also marks the first, and I think as, as of this recording, I think it's the only Oscar nomination for somebody who plays an extraterrestrial. Now, if I'm wrong about that, you can send me a note. I'll give my details at the end of the show. The love story here, it's a bit rushed. It has to be rushed because you have to go from complete repulsion to love by <laughs> within three days worth of story time. But it does feel genuine, and that's thanks to the committed performances by Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen. Charles Martin Smith here is also very good in a supporting role as the SETI agent with a conscience. Richard Jekyll, who Carpenter was also a longtime fan of due to his intimidating screen presence, he's equally slimy as the U.S. State Department bureaucrat out to capture this proof of extraterrestrial life to perform experiments on him, presumably. 
It was somewhat of a personal movie in many ways for John Carpenter. His son Cody was born during the production. He also would leave his his wife, Adrienne Barbeau, at this time. And during the production, Carpenter met Sandy King. She was working as the script supervisor for Starman. And they became an item and then later married in 1990. And they still remain married to this day. He really feels he found his soulmate there. As there were many locations to set up and technical considerations, the actors had to entertain themselves during their downtime. Karen Allen took to such things as knitting and Jeff Bridges. He began a hobby that he would actually do the rest of his career while making this film. He started it with Starman at the encouragement of Karen Allen. He would photograph behind-the-scenes goings-on for this film as well as his future films with his wide lux camera that was given to him by his photographer wife and he would compile all of these pictures into albums to give out to the cast and the crew as a memento of their time there now as for the plot of starman it's a bit murky it does start off with a i think a missing piece that i would have liked to seen there you would think that it would be vital to understanding what's going on which is the reason that the alien has decided to come to Earth, only to be picked up right away to go home. We do get a vague reference to him being a map maker, maybe an explorer, which is, I guess, for the purpose of a thoughtful romantic sci-fi concept, that's good enough because the emphasis was not necessarily on his mission, much more so than what happens during the journey. There are some religious implications here. Christ illusions abound, kind of a wink that the star man comes from a heavenly place are there. It's not really explicit or overbearing. This is definitely not a film that's trying to make you buy into a whole religious subtext here, but it definitely does make some comparisons here between Starman and perhaps an angel or Jesus or what have you. The film is not just a love story, though, between a woman and an alien, but it also has kind of a, a love for America, this cross-country depiction of America's finest assets, not only its beautiful locations, but its helpful people. Most Carpenter stories have working-class people as the heroes. The government is usually seen with much more skepticism. They're the obstacle to total greatness for the country. So Carpenter really is saying here, America is great. We have great people. We have great beauty. There's a lot to be proud of. But the government, such as it is, is what's really ruining us from complete greatness, which is something he would explore much more fully a few years down the road with They Live. Starman benefits from its sense of humor. It doesn't lose dramatic tension because of it, though. Some contrivances, as I mentioned, do abound. You have a, a young man with a hot rod offering to give Jenny a ride. You presume because she's an attractive woman that he would be interested, and so you could make up your own conclusions there. But there's no rationale as to why later, when they encounter a roadblock, that he decides to set off an explosive distraction to assure her safety, even though he was never going to see her again. You just kind of have to go with the flow of that. It has one of the best science fiction scores from the 1980s, I feel, but Carpenter actually didn't do this score. He normally scores almost all of his own movies. This one is by Jack Nietzsche, who also scored a 1981 Jeff Bridges film before called Cutter's Way. Carpenter loved the work that Nietzsche does here, and he honored the theme by including it on his own album of works in 2017 anthology movie themes. In addition to that score, there's also a song featured prominently in the film, I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. The film depicts that song as being on the Voyager golden record that was sent into space containing all of the sounds and images and greetings in many languages meant to serve as a, a hello from the people of Earth. However, in real life, that song doesn't appear on that golden record. It actually is Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. But perhaps not coincidentally, Satisfaction by the Stones 
features piano and tambourine by Starman's composer Jack Nietzsche. So bringing it full circle there, Michael Douglas was very high on Nietzsche's work since he composed One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was a Douglas production, and he wanted him to bring that magic to Starman. Nietzsche also worked for Douglas just a few months later for The Jewel of the Nile, and Nietzsche would receive a Golden Globe nomination for the score for Starman as well. Now the soundtrack, if you've bought the soundtrack, to Starman, it includes a duet between Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen. They cover an Everly Brothers classic called All I Have to Do is Dream, very famous song. They actually sing it within the course of the movie, kind of an acoustic performance within the home movie footage at the beginning of the film. But it came about because Karen Allen and Jeff Bridges liked to sing together during their downtime in the film. They became great friends during the making of this movie. In fact, if you listen to the commentary for Starman that was done with John Carpenter, and Jeff Bridges, he kind of admits he did fall in love with Karen Allen during the making of this film, and he feels that sometimes he does fall in love with his leading ladies, despite the fact that he's been married since 1977. That's neither here nor there. They did make a music video for the song to promote the film, and at the end of that video, if you watch it, you can actually search for it on YouTube and find it. They do feel the notion to kiss each other romantically at the end of their singing together, so I think they were overcome with emotion for each other at that moment. They became good friends. They still remain friends. They still get together to occasionally sing. Karen Allen sometimes appears on stage with Bridges and his band, The Abiders. And in addition to singing, she also knows how to play harmonica. She does the blues harp for the band when she does make her appearances. A Starman, for some reason, has a reputation of being kind of a hit film for John Carpenter, maybe a successful film, but actually it really was not. It never cracked the top five on any of its weeks of release, but word of mouth was kind for it. It did linger in theaters for a while. It was a modest earner. It went through the holidays, and then it took in $28 million overall in the U.S., which is pretty good for a John Carpenter film. Unfortunately, the production budget was $24 million, and that's not including all of the advertisements and the printing of the films and all that other stuff that causes overhead. But it did make money back if you want to consider that it was successful with international markets as well. So in the end, it was a hit, even though it did not make very much money above what Columbia paid for. Certainly a big disappointment when you want to compare it to what E.T. took in. But despite all of that, I do think that Starman, as a movie, it's very underrated. I think it's an overlooked gem, even by John Carpenter fans. I feel like so many other of his genre films are picked out by genre lovers. For instance, horror film fanatics really love, obviously, Halloween and The Thing and some of his other films. And a lot of his fans feel like this is much more of a mainstream or a commercial-type movie for him, not necessarily much more of a niche movie, definitely more of a crowd-pleaser, so they tend to deride it a little bit more than some of his other films. Carpenter's name is above the title when you buy it, so some of his horror fans may be disappointed seeing him take on such a light and romantic film and generally disregard it in his overall body of work as an auteur, but I feel that this definitely showcases John Carpenter's strengths as a director, as somebody who's committed to the story and storytelling. He does tell a story quite well. Despite all of the contrivances and the shortcuts that it needs to take, you ultimately do come to care about these characters and you're interested in their plight enough to make it to the end, and that's why I will give Starman three and a half stars out of four. Three and a half stars on my scale means that I do think that Starman is a good film, and I definitely recommend it for people who like this kind of movie. If you're a romantic comedy fan, especially if you have an inkling toward science fiction, you definitely will get a lot of mileage out of Starman. Certainly, it's a movie I've seen quite a few over the years. I introduced my wife to it for the purpose of this review. She had never seen it before, and she came away. She's not a big sci-fi fan necessarily, but she came away really enjoying it as well. So three and a half stars out of four is what I think Starman earns. 
Now before I go, I do have a few notes that I do want to talk about. In 1986, Michael Douglas did produce a TV show for ABC that was based on Starman. It actually was a sequel, but much later, Starman had Robert Hayes in the Starman role. It's set about 14 years after the events of this movie, and it features Starman, who assumes a different body. That's why it's Robert Hayes and not Jeff Bridges. And we also meet his teenage son. They're searching for the missing Jenny Hayden. It did only last one season, however. It didn't find a mass audience, but it did find a cult audiences, enough for them to have, during the time that it was on the air, they met for Starman celebrations because they really did enjoy this premise, at least at the time. And it is a beloved TV show for those people who took it in in the mid-1980s. Michael Douglas, he enjoyed what John Carpenter did with Starman enough to ask him to direct a few years later, Fatal Attraction, which would have been a, definitely an interesting choice to helm that film, but unfortunately, Carpenter hated the script for Fatal Attraction. He called it a knockoff of Play Misty for Me, which was coincidentally a film that was written by Starman's Dean Reisner back in the day for Clint Eastwood in the early 1970s. Instead, one of the directors that Carpenter replaced on Starman replaced him on Fatal Attraction, Adrian Lin. He took the gig and it became a huge success. In 2016, co-producer Michael Douglas was still involved trying to make a remake of Starman. He developed a film with Sean Levy as the director and Arish Amel as the screenwriter. The new version promised to have this younger cast, but little has been heard of this project after its announcement in 2016. In 2018, though, in interviews, Jeff Bridges revealed that he and Karen Allen had been discussing coming back for a Starman sequel. Independent of the one that Douglas was trying to do with Levy, they were disappointed that they were not even asked to participate in that remake, so they do feel that they should come back to do another Starman film. Certainly, that would be interesting for Starman fans to see. I don't know if there are enough fans to justify the amount of money and time and effort to put into a remake, so it may never come about, but I definitely would be interested in seeing it if it ever does. It awaits to be seen. I don't want to get my hopes up. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this retrospective look at Starman. If you have your own thoughts on Starman that you want to impart to me, maybe something I missed or maybe something that you want to echo in terms of how I feel about this film, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. There's my email address, links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, Instagram. Any of those ways are adequate to get in touch with me on any subject that you want. As far as what I'm going to be talking about next week, it's a film I actually mentioned during the body of this review. It's another movie that does get comparisons to E.T., although it's much more of an independent film, definitely an indie film vibe. Not an easy film to find nowadays. You might have to search eBay for a copy of this or maybe check your local library. They might actually have it there because it's not an easy film to find at least here in 2020. It is called The Brother from Another Planet, written and directed and edited by John Sayles, who did Night Skies, that eventually became E.T. And I will be talking about that film, which I haven't caught since I was in college, and I was very much enamored of the film at that time to watch it a few times. The Brother from Another Planet from 1984. Until then, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. (laughs) 